What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. There's been an explosion in the number of people who are using the internet to build cool stuff and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, we explore the latest trends, ideas, and strategies these indie hackers are using to get ahead so the rest of us can do the same. If you've been enjoying the show, do me a favor and leave a quick rating for us in Apple Podcasts. Not only does it help other people find the show, but it also leaves me feeling pretty great. Today, I sat down with James Trath. James is a designer and a serial indie hacker, and he recently created a set of icons in just a couple of hours that made him over $100,000 in six days. That was about a month ago. Today, his revenue from those icons is well north of $100,000. And so I asked James how he did it and how this all came to pass. And I think what really stands out from this conversation is our discussion around luck. How much of a role does luck play as an indie hacker? What kinds of tools and strategies are people using nowadays to spot these opportunities and take advantage of them? And how can you really press on the gas pedal and make a boatload of money when you have one of these lucky situations like James did, rather than just having a quick flash in the pan? James Trath, welcome to the Indie Hackers podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Last month, you made over $100,000 in six days. And this was not from some course that you had meticulously prepared. This was not from a mailing list that you grew over the years and you sold them some ebook. This just kind of happened all at once unexpectedly. And we're gonna get into the backstory of how this went down, but like right now I'm just curious, what are you gonna do with all that cash? That's a lot of money to just show up in your bank account in a week. <laughs> yeah, you know, people ask me that, but I don't really have a solid answer. You know, I, I bought a new comforter. I picked up the iPhone twelve, you know, <laughs> bought some pillows, okay. you know. So little things here and there. Dang, well, I hope you splurge. You got some real nice pillows, at least. <laughs> Comfortable, for sure. So what else? I mean, this is a lot of money. Like, how is it going to help you in life? What are you going to do with it? Yeah, it's definitely the most I've made in that amount of time, no doubt. The biggest thing that comes to mind is just using it to buy myself some more time, you know, so I'm able to now not take on as much, you know, client work or if any at all, really, and focus on the things that I actually enjoy doing. And so yeah. the, the real value of money for me is what I can afford to no longer do versus, you know, what I can afford to buy mm. or, yeah. That's a great way to put it. Let's mm. say you had enough money to not have to do anything you don't want to do. You don't have any bills to pay. Everything's taken care of. You're completely free. Do you still work on the same projects that you're working on? Do you still take the time to come on this podcast? Uh, what do you change? And how do you think about spending your time and your freedom? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, you know, I would be doing more or less the exact same thing just because, you know, my cost of living right now is is quite low. And so, Technically, this whole influx of revenue from my icons and all of this super side work, it's giving me a nice pillow in the sense where I can, you know, have the time to do whatever I want any day of the week. And I don't keep much of a schedule either. And so every day is sort of different. I work on really what interests me. And so money, if I'm breaking it down a little bit more fundamentally, obviously, it's different for everyone. But for me, it really does three things. One, it allows me to buy things that I think will have an impact on my life, but really don't. <laughs> it frees up my time so I can focus on things that I want to do and not have to do. And lastly, it'll relieve any stress that may have been caused by the lack of money uh, beforehand. Yeah. I think those last two are the big ones. And the first yeah. one is the thing that everybody chases. Exactly. And you've got to go through that. Yeah. So one of my friends splurged and bought an Eames chair, E-A-M-E-S. And these are like just okay. super outrageously fancy, expensive chairs. Yeah. It's like a, a lounge chair and an ottoman, and it costs like $5,000 or something. He was super excited to get it. He just wanted to, I guess, <laughs> sit in his chair all day and read books and, and play video games. But these are also kind of the, the kind of purchases that I think you just, you just acclimate to it. Eventually, this is just what a chair feels like to you. 
Whereas the freedom type of things, like when you're buying time and you're buying the ability to stop having to do things you don't want, even if that means like a job you don't want to go to anymore, now you have enough money to quit. I think you just appreciate those types of purchases a lot more when you can find them. Exactly. Let's get into the story behind these icons. You made $100,000 in six days, and that was over a month ago now. So I presume you've made more than 100 grand total now. Yeah, right now I'm sitting at 280,000. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> from, that's yeah, absurd. That's from, that's... that's from just over 10,000 orders, sales. That's crazy. That's way higher, honestly, than I thought you were going to say. And you made all this in like, I mean, it's been like five or five or six weeks. Yeah, about a month. Okay, so about a month, yeah. about four weeks. And most of this is not even you doing work. This is you collecting cash from the work you did early on to make the icons and promote them. And you blogged about this in the early days. You wrote a blog post called Six Figures in Six Days, and you talked about how this came to be. And it turns out this was really more like seven years in the making. So what's the, the whole story here? Yeah, so the story seven years ago began when, you know, it was the, I think it was 2013. It was the early or maybe late jailbreaking days of iOS. So for anyone who doesn't know, jailbreaking is just, you know, allowing your device to gain unauthorized access to inject certain applications into your phone. And so there was an app that everyone would inject called Cydia. And that would that was basically an unofficial app store. And so people can upload their own versions of, you know, applications and themes and add-ons, which they can then sell and others can use those to customize their device and, and their experience for their home screens. So it's like a black market app store that allows apps that Apple normally wouldn't allow. Exactly. That's the first time that I dabbled in sort of creating something, you know, at the time, I had no idea what I was doing. And so I basically just copied this guy's icon set, I replaced all the images with my own icons and images and just re uploaded as my own, essentially. And I priced it at 99 cents. And I think I sold a total of like, you know, maybe 15, 16, $17, something like that. But the interesting part about that is like, that was the first time I've experienced without knowing it at the time, digital content leverage, you know, so creating something once with sufficient effort, and then selling it repeatedly with practically zero effort. Yeah, and this is exactly what makes digital products the best, because the marginal cost of reproduction, as I call it, is zero. You are super scalable. It's not like a real world business where you have to make a sandwich every time you want to <laughs> sell a sandwich. You just make the icons once you can sell it to infinitely many people. And even if you're not making a ton of money, you made like, I think, $17, you said, it's got to open your eyes to what's possible. Exactly. That was over probably over the course of like a year, honestly, because nothing happened, you know, the day after the week after I posted these things because I had no audience, you know, I had nothing really. And the people, the only sort of demand generation I was doing was just on social media, which is almost non-existent at the time for me personally. And so, you know, fast forward seven years later, minus 30 days now. And I started seeing people post their home screens on uh, on Twitter. And these were customized home screens. And I was wondering, I was like, I was curious about it. You know, I was trying to look into it. I was like, why all of a sudden now is this going like starting to go viral? And so I discovered it. And with iOS 14, I actually think it was possible in the earlier iOS versions as well. But it just sort of caught on during iOS 14, where Apple now allows you to upload custom icons for app shortcuts. And so essentially, it would allow you to theme your, your device in any way that you wanted to. And because I've had, I've had all this sort of experience in the past, I sort of decided to just try it out. I uploaded the set of icons that I had laying around, and I decided to share a screenshot of it on Twitter. And it very quickly started to explode. <laughs> and... 
I then noticed lots and lots of people asking about the icons themselves. And when I posted this, I didn't realize it at the time. Like, I didn't even think to monetize this in any sort of way. I sort of just shared, you know, a screenshot, uh, started to go viral, noticed demand for the icons. And that's when I decided I may as well publish them, release them and sell them and maybe make a buck or two. And so that's when I decided to package the icons, publish them using Gumroad, and then basically created a website using Notion and Super and packaged them all nicely and then uh, shared them on Twitter in that same thread. And at that point, I just went to sleep, basically. It was late at night and went to bed. And the morning after, I woke up to six grand in sales. Wow. What'd that feel like? Felt surprising. (laughs) I had no expectations at all. And so to see that when I woke up, you know, all this took me about compiling all the icons, setting up the site in Notion and using Super, like all this took me maybe two hours to do. And so seeing that result from that little work was interesting, to say the least. Yeah, $3,000 an hour is not a bad rate (laughs) to charge for some icon design. (laughs) Did you think at that time that there was a way to capitalize on this and like make even more money? Or were you just kind of happy watching the numbers go up? Yeah, immediately after the day after I, I was, the tweet had gone completely viral to this point. And definitely, I was thinking, what else can I do to sort of keep this going? So I started to create a little bit more content. I started to add different pages to the site, you know, a showcase page to give people some inspiration on how to set up their home screens, how to and tutorial instruction page to basically showcase how to actually install the icons using the Siri shortcuts app. And so doubling down a little bit in terms of putting some more content together, and also putting the icons in, you know, nicer mockups and deciding to sharing those as well. Why do you think that your tweet blew up? compared to probably other people who are tweeting similar things? Or was nobody else tweeting custom icon sets? Yeah, there were definitely a few people. I I can't say that I was the first. Obviously, I discovered that other people were sharing them. And then so that's what inspired me to share my own. So I can't take credit for that. But I think probably two things. One, I had, you know, not a crazy amount of followers. I think at that point, I had around 4k. So I had some sort of network to begin with. But more than that, I think it was just the aesthetic. I think people were like saw the aesthetic and saw the vibe that I created using, you know, a combination of wallpapers, icons, widgets, things yeah. like that. And just people resonated with me. Like they saw that and they're like, I want that for my home screen. You know, I, I want that now. And so I think that's what got people sharing and eventually got people to buy. And all was going good and sales were increasing. And out of nowhere, I had a friend message me and just told me that MKBHD had featured my icon set in one of his latest videos. That was really surprising. I've been watching his videos for quite some time. And so to see my icon set on his device in his video was something else. (laughs) Yeah, that's huge. And for people who don't know MKBHD, he's a YouTuber. That's his screen name. Uh, His real name is Marques Brownlee. He's got something like 13 million followers. He's adding a couple hundred thousand followers a month. And he's got a pretty cool story behind it. But just to give people an example of how popular he is, like the video he featured you in got something like 6 million views. He's teaching people how to make their iPhones look cool. And your icons are like almost like a whole section of his video. Like, check out these cool icons. Look at my phone. You could not have paid for a better ad than what he gave you. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, the day after that video is still the highest sales day to date. I think the day after was 30 grand in sales. Nuts. Yeah. So he features you. Now you're on like a whole different trajectory where before you're making thousands of dollars. Now you're probably making tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> 
were you surprised by that? And, and did you capitalize on the fact that like now you've got an even bigger, you know, following and people who want your icons? Yeah, I definitely capitalized on it. I knew that at that point, he also tweeted about it. You know, he saw this came a little bit later, but I had also written a article a few days later when I passed the hundred grand sales mark in six days. And so I had written an article about the whole story, about the process, about the background seven years ago and looking forward today and the tools I use to create everything and all that. And that article also went viral because I guess, you know, people love stories and people especially love stories when it has to do with money <laughs> or making money. And so yeah, uh, that was shared a whole bunch. Also posted in the indie hackers community and that was responded to well, although the title was very clickbaity, but <laughs> people tend to enjoy the, the actual content. And that, that created basically the second wave which to this day, those two points were the biggest, you know, MKBHD's video and then my, my article. You see on Gumroad analytics, you see the, the two spikes, like direct correlation. And here we are four or five weeks later, $280,000 in revenue from two hours of work. And I guess a bit more work putting into effort into your website and, and your blog posts. But there's a lot to dive into here. And I think the first big topic I want to talk about is luck. Because if you're trying to be an indie hacker, it's obvious just from listening to this podcast, listening to your story and others, like luck plays some role in everybody's story. I don't think I've ever had anyone on the podcast who wouldn't say like, in some way they got lucky. And I think if you're trying to decide whether or not to be an indie hacker, you probably want to know like, how much of this is luck? How much of this is playing the lottery? So I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, James, how much of your story is luck? And how much of this is you being able to spot and effectively capitalize on a great opportunity? Yeah, I think one wouldn't exist without the other. And so I think it was very lucky that this happened at all and that I saw those few tweets. And so those were, you know, people I was following. And if I didn't see those tweets and I didn't see people sharing their home screens, I may have never even shared my own. And obviously that was the step one in the process. But the other side of that is that because I had this whole experience of continually building things and creating icons in the past and sharing my work and publishing it, I wouldn't have been able to capitalize on something as quickly as I did. And so I think one can't really exist without the other. That makes sense. Yeah, I agree. And I think mm -hmm. I've got my own like framework I'm trying to work out here because I think about luck a lot, right? And I think the best part about luck is that you, you have some degree of control. You know, it's kind of a cliche at this point, but luck is where preparation meets opportunity. I think there's like a third component of that too. It's you have to actually take action. And obviously, if you don't do anything, it doesn't matter if you spotted a lucky opportunity, like exactly. nothing's going to happen. But it also matters how you take action. If you react really poorly versus reacting really well, that's the difference between, you know, having a cool tweet and a good story and having 300k <laughs> in the bank, because you knew exactly what action to take to actually make money from there. So there's a whole spectrum of outcomes. And I want to go through each one of these three things, preparation, opportunity and action to talk about the different ways that you can capitalize on luck or make your own luck. So maybe we'll go backwards. We'll talk about action. What do you think was the most important action that you took in response to the sort of lucky event of MKBHD tweeting you and all these icons being released on iOS 14? Right. Well, yeah, like I mentioned, I think without having that initial tweet that started to go viral, I wouldn't have even released that, that icon set. And so really simply, it was just taking a screenshot of my phone, uploading them to Twitter and sharing it. And I think there's a whole lot that we can dig into that goes into that, I think, just because, you know, partly of reasons that it worked, we mentioned, you know, aesthetic is one of them. That's something that I've been, you know, I've been designing 
digital products for quite some time now. And so I've been putting aesthetic home screens together for quite some time now. I even have, you know, deviant art profile to prove it that I created, you know, seven, eight years ago that I've been putting together home screens and desktop screens and, and all those things together for quite some time. And so it's hard to say what one thing or what one piece of action, you know, contributed to the, sort of this, but most directly, it, yeah. it would definitely be just like uploading the icons, taking a screenshot, uploading them to Twitter and sharing it and letting the internet sort of do the rest. And that's such a simple thing to do. Like it's not so that simple. strategic. It's just kind of, <laughs> it's just showing your work, right? I did this thing, check it out. How often are you tweeting? Was that an abnormal thing for you or is this how you always use Twitter? I'm more of a visual person. So I lately have been tweeting quite a few things, mostly within the last like six to eight months, you know, as I uh, have created Super and I've been creating more and more digital products, which we can dig into later. I've been sharing more and more on Twitter. And so it felt a little bit natural to me, especially when something is so aesthetic that I'm just like, you know, I know people are going to go crazy over this because I'm going crazy over it. Obviously, the people that follow you are like-minded in a sense. And so uh, I knew it was going to work. I just had no idea how well it was going to work. I interviewed Cesar Kuriyama earlier this year. He's got this app called One Second Every Day. I think the only other person I've talked to had like a really like well-timed tweet that really paid off, where in his situation, it had almost nothing to do with his work. Like he wanted to talk to this director, John Favreau, and just like say something nice to him that he thought other people weren't saying. And so he like typed out this tweet and he's like, oh, this is stupid. I don't need to send this tweet. This is like a famous director. He's not going to read this. And then he like passed out, woke up. So he was still there in draft mode and he clicked tweet and then nothing happened. And then a year or something later, he was working with this movie studio and they're like, yeah, we want to put your app in our movie. And one of the guys on the set was telling him like, you know why we wanted to put your app in our movie, right? And he's like, no, I have no idea. I just thought you thought it was cool. And he's like, no, like you tweeted John Favreau a year ago and he thought it was a really nice tweet and he checked out your profile and he found your app and he's been using your app every single day since then. And he thought, I got to put this in my movie. I think the movie is called Chef. But it's pretty cool just to see like these simple actions you can take and like it costs you almost nothing. And most of the time it's not going to work out. But if you have a habit, like you said, you've been doing this for six to eight months, then that just massively increases your luck surface area. And like that is kind of the initial action that made the luck possible for you. Exactly. Yeah. Luck favors those who are in motion in some way or another, you know, and in the internet age, motion just means putting your work out there, not being afraid to share it, not being afraid of oversharing in a sense. I think all those excuses are ways to just prevent you from doing that. And so that's a great story. I think there's another few factors that go into taking action that are super important. So I wrote them down here, wrote down persistence, speed, time and strategy. So persistence in your particular situation was pretty obvious. I mean, you didn't like just take one action. You kept taking action. You made that initial tweet. You wrote a blog post. You... We're retweeting MKBHD. I think you even made, did you make like a special MKBHD icon set? Yeah. So after I had written the article, I guess, I don't know how he found out about that either, probably on Twitter or something where, you know, there are a few people I think that tagged him or that posted it, you know, as comments in his video. And so he discovered the blog post. He discovered that, you know, me, a designer made a hundred grand in six days. And a lot of that was caused from his video. And so he decided to tweet about it. And he tagged me and he linked the icons and everything. And so I knew that there was a lot of people going to be visiting my Twitter profile from his tweet. At this point, I saw a tweet from, I think it was Super Saf, who's, who's another you know YouTube influencer uh, and tech YouTuber. And he posted something along the lines of, now all we need is an MKBHD themed pack or MKBHD version, you know? 
And I figured, why not? You know, <laughs> it'll take me maybe another half an hour, you know. And so I created like this very notable MKBHD red, red and black icon set. I posted it on Twitter with a, you know, quote tweet for this guy's, this guy's initial tweet. And that got another, I think, 200,000 impressions from that. You know, I didn't end up, end up actually selling very much of it. I think I sold, you know, about two grand worth. But I think it's what people enjoyed was like the actual process of me, you know, putting together an icon theme specific to MKBHD, adding his logo in the social image, you know, it was fun for me. And it brought a whole bunch of traffic to to the actual uh, original icon page as well. It's a super smart strategy. And I think it's so easy when like, some event happens, just kind of react to it, but not realize that you can just continually react to it. (laughs) And this is obviously where some of the best founders shine. They don't just have one lucky event happen and rest on their laurels. They just make consistently good decisions to capitalize on that over and over again for months or years after the initial event. And even for something as simple as like an icon set, which again, took you two hours, it turns out that you can blog about it and you can create a special icon set toward like a particular person who's got a big channel and a big audience. And there's just a ton of stuff you can do to keep going back. I mean, you're on this podcast right now and like, I don't promise I'm going to sell you as many icons as uh, (laughs) MKBHD did, but like you never stopped capitalizing on it. And I think this is why one of the the factors here I, I listed for taking action is also time. A lot of people just don't have time to do this. So they get the ingredients to luck, they get the preparation, they get the opportunity, and those are together and it's time for them to take action. They just don't have time. They haven't figured out a way to clear enough time in their schedule to take advantage of things that pop up. What did your schedule look like where you could just sit around basically making icons and writing blog posts all day and have the time to capitalize on your luck? Yeah, that's a good question. For me, I'm always optimizing for freedom. And that includes, you know, having a clear schedule. I think for me, inspiration is hugely effective in terms of, you know, it's, I, I use it as a productivity multiplier in a sense, but it's perishable, right? And so it doesn't last forever. And so for me, taking advantage of that inspiration is hugely important. And so I continually prioritize a clear calendar and freedom to be able to act on my ideas as they come. Because I know, especially for me, I do so many things at once. And so it's easy to hop from one idea to the, to the next for me. Probably many indie hackers share this belief as well. And so it's important to me that I, you know, I have the, the leisure to be able to capitalize on these things as they come up. And, and that's how I know that I'm putting together, you know, my best work is when I'm during this, when I'm within this state of productivity multiplication and I'm just like hyped up and I'm excited. And I know that the work I'm putting out there is just like, I'm working five times faster. I'm putting out work mm-hmm. that's five times better all during this state. And so that's hugely important for me. I love the phrase you use there, that inspiration is mm-hmm. perishable. You're not always going to be the same level of inspired. And once you get that inspiration, it's not always going to last. So that's your window of time to get a lot more work done and <laughs> enjoy doing it more than other windows of time. Like if I think about the things that inspire me, it's usually other people's stories. When I listen to podcasts, when I hear about other people exactly. you know, doing amazing things. A friend sent me a talk by Derek Sivers over the weekend, and it just got me super jazzed. And I was super excited to work right after that. So if you could find out what your inspirational hacks are, that's when you want to press the gas pedal. You could probably get more work done in those time periods than you can do in all the other times combined and feel much better about it. <laughs> yeah. And so now, exactly. And now I, I sort of optimize for times like that. You know, I know that they're going to hit and I know based on what I'm working on, you know, at what point they're going to come in sense. And so now I'm like, putting things out there actually makes me more inspired to keep going, you know, and keep putting things out there and keep fueling the fire. And it just continually builds up and builds up. The other thing you had that I think is important for taking action in response to these lucky situations is, is just speed. 
because you don't have all day to take action. Like the opportunities usually don't exist forever. And I think the turnaround time for you, from you like tweeting uh, your icon set out to realizing like, hey, this is something that like I could actually make money doing and like putting it up online is pretty amazing. So how are you able to get this website up and running so fast and start accepting payments? Yeah, so I think there were three parts of it. So I used Gumroad to actually list the product for sale. And honestly, I probably could have stopped there. <laughs> it was probably enough. You know, your product page, I could have had a description, add the price, you know, add testimonials on that page if I wanted to, things like that. But I knew that there was a lot of question around the product here. And it's like, how do I install them? What types of screens or home screens can I de- deliver with this? And can I create with this? And so I knew I wanted to have some sort of website. And for me, it was natural just because, you know, I spent a lot of time creating websites for clients in the past and also for myself and my own projects. But I figured this time was really of the essence. You know, I knew people, the tweet was getting more and more viral every, every second. And so I really wanted to capitalize on speed. And so, after uploading my product to Gumroad, I had created a basic website using Notion and I used Super, which is also a tool that I built that adds publishing features to Notion. So that allowed me to add custom domains, analytics, custom fonts, and things like that to my Notion doc. And all that for anyone who does or doesn't know Notion, you know, you could put together a document within a matter of minutes, you know, and so creating a, a full-fledged website in a matter of minutes, publishing it to the web, to your own custom domain, doing all this so quickly is a huge advantage. And for people who want to see this website, I hope I'm looking at the right one. It's icons.tr.af. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I actually, the only reason I use the subdomain is is for that speed. You know, Normally, I would put at probably tr.af slash icons and put it on my mm-hmm. on my actual website. But that would have taken more time because my actual website is done with you know HTML and CSS and some JavaScript. And so I knew that would have taken a little bit more time. And so I optimized for speed there and put it on a subdomain using Super and Notion. So this is almost like a, an ad for the no-code industry because these are all no-code tools. Like obviously Gumroad is no-code. Like you don't have to code anything on Gumroad. You just have a digital product, in your case, icons. You upload it to Gumroad and then suddenly you can accept payments. And you've got Notion, which I use. I think of it as like a sort of high-tech, modern Google Docs. And you just made a Notion page. You can do that in like a second. And you've got Super, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is your app, which, again, it can turn, I guess, a Notion page into a fully-fledged public website. And your website looks great. Like, there's no, like, if I did not know this was a Notion page, you didn't told me, I would never have guessed. I would say this is just like a natural page that somebody took the time to design really well. And it probably took you days or hours to design this page, but this is like done in minutes, which is insane. And so like your knowledge of all these no-code tools helped you basically get something out there way faster than you otherwise would have. Yeah, and I think that's probably an under-leveraged skill, you know, utilizing tools, especially no-code tools that are available to all of us, you know, because it's such a low barrier to entry. Like in a way, a good designer is is sometimes just a good curator of products and services that are available. And so I think being a good designer is just, you know, finding cool resources from the web, around the web, you know, compiling them together, slap on a name and a brand and push it out to the world. <laughs> well, it looks great. And I think this is the, the last part of sort of acting on these lucky situations is just like strategy, execution, just like quality, right? Like you have to actually have a good icon set. If you tweeted out a really ugly icon set, MKPHD probably wasn't going to put that in his video. But also you did a bunch of other stuff, right? You put together this Notion page really well. You tweeted really well. You've been tweeting for a while and like kind of have the knack for it. And you wrote this blog post, which I want to dig into, which went viral, as you mentioned, pretty much everywhere. I think it was at the top of Hacker News. 
It was the most popular post on Indie Hackers for a while. How did you think about writing this blog post and what do you think made it so successful? I really just wanted to document the story up until this point because a lot of people look at overnight success and then get a little bit salty in a way, you know, it's like, I could have done that, you know, but I think there's a lot that goes into it. And so I really wanted to outline the fact that this overnight success that other people are seeing as an overnight success was actually, you know, more or less seven years in the making. Just because, you know, I, I don't think I would have been able to capitalize on all this if I didn't previously go through all that time and effort of building skills, building experience, putting home screens together, sharing them. Mm. If I built and created these home screens and these icons even and never shared them, I even think that would have probably stopped me from sharing them at this point because it wouldn't have been something that felt natural to me. So I think every step of the process is something that's really important to have because the end result wouldn't exist without any of that prior uh, right. discovery. And so in a way, people were seeing your tweets about how much money you're making from these icons and kind of hating. <laughs> and you wrote this blog <laughs> post as a way to explain yourself and be like, no, 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 it's not all luck. Like, Look at all the stuff that I did to get here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't blame people. Like, I feel like in some ways I used to feel the same way. Like when I used to see people that I knew make up a whole bunch of money in a short period of time, I felt a little unsettling, you know, but now when I see it, it's just like, it's just inspiring. And so I often say to those people, you know, other people's success isn't your failure, but it could be, or it could act as your motivation. Yeah, it's such a good point. And it's like, it's one of those common feelings that a lot of people won't admit to, mm -hmm. but like, it's super common. A lot of people feel that other people's success reflects on their own lack of success. Selling a friend about another friend's business success. And his immediate reaction was like, oh, like that sounds like a scam. Just kind of put them down, you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I think yeah. in a way it's like saying that it's so easy to say, you know. Makes him feel it's super easy to say. And it's really yeah. just like a coping mechanism to make him feel better about not doing anything. But the reality is that like, he'd be better off if he just had more positive attitude about it and realize like, hey, maybe I, I could have done this and maybe I should do this or at least be inspired by hearing stories of what other people are doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the people who often say, you know, I could have done that, they're the ones who don't do it, you know, <laughs> and just, so it's, it just feels like this weird correlation there. And to go back a little bit, I want to mention, you know, there's a lot of things on the icons page that I feel is not up to par with my own work. I still feel like a big part of it is unfinished. You know, I feel like the experience of using the icons is still pretty horrible. Like the drawbacks are pretty, pretty bad. They didn't come with the most icons in the set. They aren't the nicest. You know, they're far from being the least expensive. You know, as a matter of fact, I think they might be one of the most expensive. And so I think there's a lot there that didn't go right. So I think it's more about optimizing for the things that are good enough. <laughs> right. And to me, that's something that's hard to do, you know, as a, as a designer, as a somewhat of a perfectionist. There's a lot of things that could stop me from taking action or pursuing something. But I think it's important to differentiate between what's something that's you know perfect and what's something that's good enough and, and what'll get you to the next stage. Knowing like the 80-20, like what's good enough is I think an essential founder skill. And yeah. most founders come from some type of individual contributor role, whether they're a software engineer or a marketer or a designer. And when you work that kind of role in a company for a long time, you start it kind of throws your sense of what's good enough out of whack because the rest of the company around you is handling everything else. If you're a designer working at some company, like you just design and you can be as much of a perfectionist as you possibly want to be and it's fine. In fact, that's kind of encouraged because that's your only role. But when you put on right. the founder hat and you realize there's like a, a bunch of things that matter, like, okay, how fast am I to the market? Like, how am I going to promote this? What distribution channel am I going to hit? Like, who's my target audience? Like, how much am I going to charge? Like, you realize you don't have time to spend like every second of every day tweaking the design, even if you are a perfectionist designer. So 
the fact that you're able to get this out here and be a little bit embarrassed about it <laughs> and yet realize that like, you know, it doesn't matter. You've like gone far enough in that direction. You iterate on other things is super. I think it just speaks to your experience as a founder. And we're going to get into this a little bit later because you've started other companies in the past. Like this isn't your first rodeo. But mm-hmm. I've got a few more questions about like you making this this iConcept blow up. It cost twenty eight dollars. Twenty eight dollars <laughs> for icons that you made in two hours. I've seen people work on SaaS apps for five months and then charge like five dollars. <laughs> oh, how did you come to a, a price of twenty eight bucks? By the way, I'm one of those people that also works on SaaS apps that <laughs> charge five dollars for the product. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there too. So I'm both of those people on both ends, and so. I think I just look at it differently with some things. And so if you think about it, there was no sort of notion as what an iOS icon set should be priced at because iOS icons were not ever really a thing outside of the jailbreaking scene, which was not native at all. It was the furthest thing from native. And so there was no notion at all. And so it's common on the Cydia store for icons to be priced at 99 cents, you know, 199, 499, maybe if they come with thousands and thousands of icons. But there was no notion previously as what an iOS icon set should be priced at. And so I figured I had, if I was the first to market, I could really price this thing at anything I wanted to. Maybe I would have sold more if I would have priced them for less, but we'll never know. But generally, I'm really happy with how I priced it. You know? And it, it was kind of a whim. You know, I, I had been selling Lightroom presets on Gumroad as well for 28 bucks, And I figured may as well just <laughs> be consistent, stick with 28 bucks, and we'll see how it goes. And I could always change pricing if I wanted to, but ended up working fine. Yeah, I think you can't really complain about the results. And like, you're right, we'll never know if there's like some yeah. other point on the pricing curve that was perfect, but it doesn't really matter, especially when you're dealing with these like once in a lifetime opportunities, you just got to pick something. And I, I think erring on the side of charging more is usually the right option because you can always lower your prices later. And also in your situation, like people aren't buying these icons like for some utility reason because they want to make money. People are buying these icons because they want to have them because MKBHD is tweeting them because they look cool because it's trendy. And I think your audience is probably well off tech workers and tech fanboys and girls. So uh, (laughs) I think it was probably wise to to charge that much. Yeah. And and that's another good point too with MKBHD. You know, for for someone who's reviewing like generally expensive tech products all day long, is a $28 icon set going to be more appealing to him or is like a 99 set icon set going to be more appealing? And so it also depends about who you want your audience to be in a sense or who you want to attract. It's a great point. Price is not ancillary to your product. It's price is part of your product. And if you charge very little, it kind of makes your product seem cheap and crappy. And if you charge exactly. $28, it's like, this is a premium icon set that you can't get yeah. anywhere else. Like this is from James. This is a James Traffic <laughs> icon set. Like, you're exactly. lucky to be able to buy these. Yeah, and, and actually the, the MKBHD icon set was priced the same at the start and included only half oh, the yeah? amount of icons. You know, so, for, <laughs> so with my original icon set, there are like four colorways that, that are included. But with the MKBHD one, mm-hmm. there's red and black and I priced them the same, you know. And so it's even more premium feeling because it's an MKBHD themed icon set. Exactly. And people are happy yeah. to pay for it. Yeah, exactly. Talked about action. Let's talk about opportunity a little bit. I think opportunity plays obviously a huge role in luck. In fact, it's probably the the most lucky part of any lucky situation because the opportunity is not something that you really create, although you can kind of influence it. But like you weren't at Apple saying, hey, you guys should let people create custom icons. Like you didn't know this was going to happen. It just suddenly happened, but you caught on to it. And so when I look at your story, I think there's a few parts of the opportunity that you did really well. My breakdown here is that number one, you want to share a lot because when you share, you create opportunity. So that kind of ties into your first tweet. Number two, and this has always been hard for me because I don't like the news, but I think you need to just read a lot. Like you need to be 
up to date with what's going on, at least in your industry, in order to spot these opportunities. And if you weren't like on Twitter keeping your eye open, then you never would have seen people tweeting these things. And it's the same for MKBHD. Like if he wasn't sort of aware of what's going on, he never would have caught onto your icon set and realized he could put that in his video. So I think just being aware of what's going on and keeping your ear to the ground is really important for opportunity. And I think you kind of nailed both of those. Yeah, and it, opportunity in a sense that it feels, or at least following the news that you're interested in, it feels supernatural. You know, obviously you want to read and absorb the content surrounding subjects that you're passionate about. And so people might hear, you know, oh, I have to read the news now, you know, it might feel like work, but like just follow, I think you could just follow the people that are in the industries that you're interested in and you'll discover a whole bunch of things that come up every day within their industries. Exactly. And it's different depending on the channel as well. Like, yeah, I rarely want to say, I'm not going to like, read a newspaper. You know, I'm not going to New York Times, but if I like go to like my industry, then it's much easier. But then there's certain mediums that I care more about. Like I subscribe to a ton of newsletters on my iPad and I'm like kind of like 50-50 with reading my iPad. Sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. Podcasts, every time I go for a walk anywhere, I listen to podcasts. And I've just sort of subtly like shifted my habits recently to listen to more podcasts that tell me new things that are happening because it's just like an easy passive way for me to be like up to date as to what's going on. And then Twitter is like obviously a huge place for news if you're like in the tech industry, you care at all about technology because every software engineer, every designer, uh, every startup founder is on Twitter. And so for me, like I don't enjoy reading Twitter that much because it's so distracting. And my timeline, no matter who I follow, just ends up being a bunch of like non-tech stuff. So I wrote a bot, kind of like a hack for myself because I know how important it is to be caught up on the news. And my hack just like, my bot just goes and looks at every indie hacker's account on indiehackers.com, grabs their Twitter profile, and then looks at all the things they've tweeted in the last 24 hours. And it gives me three things, like which links were tweeted the most, which tweets were liked the most, and which tweets were retweeted the most. And then it just sends it to me in like kind of a newsletter way. So I just click on that every single day. And like, that's the easiest way for me to get my news and know what's going on. Like, that's how I found out about you. That's how I found out about like a lot of my podcast guests. And I think other people can be creative as well and try to figure out how to like increase this opportunity and figure out just how they can like see opportunities come onto their radar. Because if you're kind of just passively not in a an environment or a mode where that happens and like you're just going to get lucky way less often. Absolutely. I think that's great. I would probably use that bot to be honest. It seems like a hyper focused, efficient version of a newsletter. Yeah, it's it's cool. And it's like everyone's got their own audience. You mentioned earlier, you knew your audience would care about your aesthetic design sense and the fact that like these icons look beautiful yeah. because like they're your followers. I know that like okay, well my audience is indie hackers. If I just get all the people who are subscribed to indie hackers Twitter accounts, I'll probably have pretty good signal on what's important to them because it's going to be the same thing that's important to me. And so I think everyone out there can just kind of find somebody who's your audience or find somebody else who's curating somebody who's your audience and figure out like what's news to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really want to emphasize that I, I think the other points that we've discussed is, you know, opportunity would be nothing without them because I feel, I feel like in a sense people consume, I mean, it's no surprise that people consume too much, but I even think that people consume some of the good stuff too much in a sense, because, you know, no matter how many books you read or podcasts you listen to, I think action is only going to come from within. And if you think about it, no one can really teach you anything. They can only inform you of things. And so reading and watching and listening, you know, they'll fill your mind with information. Whereas creating and building and publishing will actually make use of that information. Yeah. And I published a tweet few weeks ago that, you know, makes it easy for me to remember this concept, which is, you know, read to find new ideas, write or teach to better understand them and implement to actually learn from them. I love the idea of writing and teaching to better understand ideas because it's so counterintuitive to anyone who hasn't like written a lot or taught a lot. 
but you end up learning so much just trying to explain something to somebody else and organizing your thoughts around it. And very few people like on earth spend a lot of time writing and thinking. Comedians spend a lot of time writing and thinking. Like no wonder like they're so witty and they have like interesting takes on the world because like they're spending their full time job just like thinking about stuff. I think about this with my boss, Patrick. Like he doesn't have a lot of day to day individual contributor activities and stuff to do. Like he's just kind of thinking a lot. <laughs> right. like, I got to like write code and like, you know, do all sorts of stuff and fill out all sorts of forms. So if you can take the time out of your day to just think and write or teach, then you're going to have much, much higher quality thoughts than almost everybody else who just has no time to think. And if you can like leave space in your calendar to be empty, to be inspired, then you also can take advantage of luck when it happens. So I feel like you're in a good spot where you just have like an empty calendar, a lot of thinking, a lot of teaching and writing and like that's just the perfect recipe for being able to like take good action and know what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a highly under leveraged superpower in a sense. Like it's just setting out time to think about the things that you that you're thinking about and, and writing about them. I think it'll internalize a lot of the, a lot of your beliefs. So everything is not very surface level and you'll be able to better understand yourself in a way because of that. Yeah. So then the last part of luck, so we've gotten kind of in reverse, is preparation. And we've spoken a lot about like you obviously have been making icons for a long time and you're working on Super, which helps you turn a Notion page into a website. So you obviously knew about that. But you've also got like this experience as a founder, right? You've started other companies before. In fact, you went through Y Combinator. And I love talking to any hackers who've gone through Y Combinator because it's not common that people go from like, you know, the Silicon Valley sort of high growth startup world into indie hackerdom. In fact, it's more often the other direction that people typically you know, travel. So give me the story behind you doing YC and why you decided to eventually become an indie hacker instead of going the investor, raise a ton of money route. Right. Well, a few years back, I think this was 2014, me and a couple of guys got together. I was actually hired by them initially as a designer to work on an app that they had thought about, which was called Airborne. And over the weekend, I don't remember how it came up, but someone from the team decided that it would be cool if you could just send someone a gift anonymously and randomly. So you, you wouldn't know what the gift was. And you wouldn't know who was actually sending you the gift. There would just be a package show up on your doorstep with a, a like a personal note. And we thought it was a, a you know a fun idea. And so we launched you know, a landing page over the weekend. It was 25 bucks to send somebody a gift and a personal note. And we would do all of that manually for now. Like we, we had no expectations whatsoever. It actually worked better than the previous six months of the previous app. And so yeah. at that point was the applications for uh, Y Combinator. And we, we had to make the decision. It's like, were we going to apply with this app that we had spent six months building that had, you know, okay traction, nothing crazy, or this weekend project that was still mostly a joke to us that saw more traction than this other one saw in six months. And so we obviously were more passionate about the weekend project because it was working better. And so we figured we would apply with that. And I even think to this date, like we were one of the youngest companies that have ever gotten into Y Combinator. I think we were like a week or two old by the time we actually applied. It's pretty ballsy to decide that you're going to abandon this thing you've worked on for a long time and <laughs> go with this, this like a week old project. Like how well was it doing compared to your, your previous app that like you decided to make that decision? Yeah, well, the previous app, it was like we weren't making money yet. And so we were still building a lot of relationships and networking and mm. things like that. And so it felt as though anything we would have launched that would have put a dollar in our pocket would have worked better, you know? And so we made a, I don't even think it was that much, you know, maybe a couple hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or something worth of orders. But the point is that it came from complete strangers, you know, no one that we knew personally. I think we had launched like a very 
preliminary page on Product Hunt, even as a pre-launch product. And, you know, we got some orders from there. And so it was just, it was something that was working. And if you're working on yeah. something for a few months and you're not seeing any, any dollars come of it, it just feels as though anything that you work on that does provide you with money, you just want to jump on it. You want to capitalize it. You want to double down, you know, because it's, it's way more exciting. It's crazy how fast you're able to do it too, because I think people have this idea that if you're going to make money, it just takes a lot of time. Like you need to sit down and it's going to take you six months, nine months, 12 months to build something that works. But I've fairly often run into people who've had these situations where you make something and like that happened with your icon set within, you know, a single night you made six grand and it happened with your gifting app. Over a weekend, you created something that was making money. It happened with Sahil, the creator of Gumroad. He, I think, built mm -hmm. Gumroad in a weekend and launched it on Hacker News. And like, that's the business. It hasn't changed all that much since when he first made mm -hmm. it. Josh Pickford from Bear Metrics. He coded his app up in a week and he had paying customers by the end of it. And there's example after example of like apps and things people can build that provide real value right up front. And so I think this kind of goes back to the whole speed point. If you've convinced yourself that it's going to take you a year to build something, unless you've just got a ton of money in the bank and like you want to spend a year doing this, you probably should like go back to the drawing board and think like, what can I do that's faster, that's easier, that's simpler? Because there's just so many untapped ideas out there that don't take a whole lot of time to make a reality. Yeah. Exactly. And I think everyone should be trying a whole boatload of things like just to not only see what works, but see what they're interested in, what, what they're interested in doubling down on if some, one of those projects do end up working. Peter Levels had his famous 12 startups in 12 months project. Right. And I see people copying this all the time. And I'm glad they are because it's a really good idea. I'm going <laughs> to set an ending deadline for every single idea, one month per idea. If it takes longer than that, I move on to the next one. And I think that constraint helps you build much faster. It helps you do what you're saying, figure out what you actually like, because you might think you like something. Like I never would have thought that I would want to start a podcast or a community, but it turns out it's super fun for me. And I never would have gotten here if I didn't try a bunch of other stuff first. So I like that idea of just starting lots of different stuff and seeing what sticks. And in your particular situation, obviously this gifting idea stuck. You got into YC. I love gifting apps because they're just so like, like your idea is pretty fun in general. You get to give people a random gift, I think it was, and it's 25 bucks and they don't know what they're going to get, which takes all the pressure off of the gift giver. And you can just give your friend a gift for Christmas or their birthday or something and not have to worry about like them not liking it, which I think is a lot of the pressure of gift giving. Like I've been asking yeah. friends and stuff like, what do you think about the holidays? <laughs> and almost nobody likes Christmas because of the pressure of like, oh, I got someone the wrong gift or whatever. And so you sort of solve that problem. How did it go from there? Yeah, well, we, we had pivoted quite a bit over the course of Fly Combinator, you know, we had we had moved out to Silicon Valley, set up an office, made it official, and then we just built out the product and and we just experimented like crazy with seeing like what what's what's sticking, what's working, what's engaging. You know, we had the opportunity to create like a, a great brand from scratch, and so that that was really fun. I think in total, we actually had like probably close to eight or nine complete redesigns in a sense of like actual products, you know, not just like aesthetically, really? but actually like what we're offering as a product. Like different gifting products? Yeah. So we tried a whole bunch of things. Like we even took the B2B route at one point. And so we were actually influenced a lot by the partners at Y Combinator because they seem to be more familiar with like the business side of things and the B2B route in certain products and categories. And so obviously we wanted to listen and absorb what, what all these people had to say. You know, they were they were really smart and we wanted to act on some of their ideas. And the problem is that that kind of separated our vision with their vision. And I think in the grand scheme of things, we actually lost a little bit of time focusing on those because we knew that Spoil should be a you know a consumer app. 
And so the B2B, although it was fun and generated some revenue, it took us a little bit away from the vision of our product. And you know, that was just one of the many examples. What we had actually ended up with was, I think, our best version of it, which was you know, a mobile gifting app. You would give things that are really easy to give and, and perishable in a sense. So like cupcakes, you know, flowers, balloons, like things that you're able to like re-gift if need be. Even healthy things like smoothies. And we had like different things like you can gift someone a pizza if you wanted to, you know. So we had we had events and categories of products and and we also kept our surprise mystery box for the sake of like that's what got us to the point where we were at and we wanted to just keep that as a sense of history. And so we would we would leverage local suppliers for fulfillment. We would actually use the the Postmates API to uh, leverage local delivery drivers to actually deliver the gifts like within an hour or two of actually placing the order. So the good thing about stuff like this is you're doing something that's very transactional. You're allowing people to buy things that they already are used to buying. And it's much easier to do that than it is to like sell people like some sort of software they've never seen before in a category they don't understand. You have to convince them of why they need to buy it. Like people understand why they give each other gifts. People understand like what it's like to buy a pizza. Nobody balks at the price of a pizza. It's just like straightforward. The <laughs> downside is these are all like very physical goods, which means the margins are pretty low. Like if you are yeah. facilitating the purchase of a pizza and then you're also plugging in the Postmates so they take their cut to do like the delivery, it's probably not that much left over for you. How'd you deal with those issues of, of selling real world goods for low margins? Yeah, well, put simply, we didn't, you know, we ended up running out of money in the end. And so that that was definitely a contributing factor. But that's the huge reason why I look at the huge contrast between inventory based products and, you know, digital products is is so massive, because it's like, it costs you nothing, you can launch it in a matter of minutes, versus something like spoil, and not only on the product level, but also on the company level, I feel like part of the reasons why now I have a peculiar appreciation for, you know, small a profitable bootstrap businesses or indie hacker type businesses is because of how independent I am now versus how dependent we were earlier on. And so when you have investors, you have employees, you have an entire team, you know, you have your customers, there's, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of moving pieces and it's really hard to execute on, on your vision individually. And so do you feel like it's easier or less stressful to be an indie hacker instead of having this high growth startup pressure? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely happy with the direction I'm taking now. But don't get me wrong, like I'm I'm super super grateful that I went through that experience. I mean, I think I think working on or even in a startup it can sort of act as a skill multiplier because you can either hire for a job that you need or you can figure out how to do it and save a bunch of time, effort and money. And so which is why most people in that environment just choose to figure it out. That's yeah. what sort of led me to the path and direction of actually like creating websites and building mobile apps and actually designing and, and at all in the first place. And so I'm definitely grateful I did that. And I also am proud in the sense of what we built, you know, at the end of our life cycle, we were more traditionally, when you think of gifting, you think, you know, it's complicated, it's infrequent, it's expensive. But with Spoil, we sort of made it easy, frequent and low cost. And so we actually started to engineer sort of a new way to give and receive. And so in a way, it was sort of a new category of gifting, or I should say giving. Because many, many of our top spoilers, which is what we used to call them, were giving a few times per week rather than a few times per year. And so it was, it was definitely rewarding. So often when I talk to founders, you have some sort of business or app that's kind of working or that's working pretty well. They find it hard to just give it up. For example, the founders of HomeJoy, this is a, like an on-demand cleaning app from five or six years ago. They raised a ton of money, like $50, $60 million. They're going to be Uber for home cleaning. You press a button, the cleaner shows up. Seemed like a great idea at the time. 
they also ended up running out of money. But the founders like didn't quite want to give it up. Like I think one of the founders went and then started like another cleaning company after that. And on one hand, you could say like this is a horrible idea. You already tried this; it failed. Move on to something else. But you could also build an argument that it's a really good idea because you have all this domain expertise, and you're probably the one person on earth having failed at this thing who can go back and like you know do a round two and do it better this time. So why didn't you go back and do like an indie hacker version of your gifting startup? Yeah, it's a great question, and there's a lot that goes into that. Like we we had a we had spent probably a month just talking about that, just talking about let's give up our investors, let's give up our, a lot of our customers in a sense, let's give up a lot of the place where we're offering this. Let's just start from scratch, rebuild the product from the ground up with very little money in the bank. But screw it, let's just go move back in with our parents and, and just build this up. You know, so that was a real conversation. Like that was something that we had thought about. You know, half of our team, we, we were four uh, co-founders, and so. Two of us actually had, you know, wives and families. And so they needed something a little bit more stable. And so they had to go and actually get jobs. Mm. And me and one of the other guys were deciding whether we actually wanted to do this ourselves. And so ultimately, I think it came down to the fact that neither of us were truly intrinsically passionate about something like this. I think we both saw a really great opportunity and we both believe that this could be something really big. But what it would take to actually get there is not something that we were willing to actually put in. And, you know, some people are okay with that. You know, they see an opportunity, they're just capitalists, you know, they, they see that something are just is working, they go and sell that and figure out yeah. how to make it work. And that's totally fine. For me personally, if I don't have like a direct connection with it, and if I don't experience that problem myself, I won't be able to properly put together a product, I won't be able to properly create a brand, I won't be able to effectively market to potential customers. And so for me, I'm more on the side of like building products that work for myself, that solve my own problems, because worst case scenario, I end up with one customer, which is myself, and I make my life 0.1% right. better. Okay, so you were self-aware enough to resist the sunk cost fallacy. You took all the knowledge and the effort and the time that you spent on your early idea, and you just threw it all away, made a clean break, started something brand new from scratch. And that thing is called Super. It lets you convert a page in Notion into its own standalone website. Uh, and it's doing pretty well. It's making money. How'd you come up with the idea for Super? Yeah, it's a great gateway because this is a problem that I was experiencing myself. I use and love Notion and I wanted to use it for something public facing. And I realized that, you know, I could turn on sharing and just share the Notion URL, but it doesn't really feel on brand. You know, it's, it has their URL mm -hmm. and their logo plaster all over it. And when you're building a, creating a website that you're actually publishing, that's rarely ever the case. And so I figured there must be a way to actually add your own custom domain, you know, customize styles, things like that. And so there were some solutions out there, but they were very hacky. They required knowledge of Cloudflare workers and things like that. And so I wanted to create a simple solution that I could use myself and then just go and find more people like me who are also publishing their Notion pages to the web. And so I had reached out to this guy that I used to know. His name is Jason. I actually found him originally in 2017 during the whole cryptocurrency crave. He had built a mobile wallet, cryptocurrency wallet. And I reached out to him and I want to say, you know, let's build something. I'm a designer. You're a developer. This is perfect. We could build anything. And we tried a few things, nothing that really came to fruition. But then I pitched him this notion, this super idea. And he was a notion user himself and he figured it was a good idea. So we just teamed up and within, I think about a month, we, we pushed this out. So a month to build. How long have you been working on it since then? And what's your revenue at? Yeah, so we've been working on it since I think May. So about five, almost six months, almost six months. And we just passed 
4,500 in uh, monthly recurring revenue. There you go again. Pretty fast development time, pretty high <laughs> amount of revenue. Some people don't ever get to $4,500 a month in revenue. What do you think accounts for you being able to hit that milestone so quickly? Yeah, I think we very deeply integrated with the growing Notion community. And so I think one of the most important pieces of building a company is the market you're in. And that's going to determine a lot of your growth, a lot of your success, a lot of you know how quickly your, your potential customers are finding you. And so the Notion community is great. It's like it's engaging. Everyone within it is like they're growing, it's growing repeatedly. And so it's definitely a great market to be in, especially a growing market. And we're able to like ride the wave pretty nicely. And we've also collaborated with a lot of like no code tools and companies like uh, MakerPad. And so we, we had created and collaborated with them on a very deep sort of deep dive. And they had actually created a whole set of content for us that includes things like selling digital products with Gumroad and Notion and Super, embedding memberships with MemberSpace. And so being deeply integrated with all these other great companies in a growing no-code market, I think, is what enabled us to quickly find product market fit. It's super smart the way you've done that. I think it's a, a recurring theme in almost all the stuff that you've worked on recently. Like if you think about your icons, like that was kind of writing the trend and like the popularity of iOS 14. Everybody's tweeting about this right now. Like this is big news. People are talking about it. And then MKBHD, like he's got a huge following, right? It makes perfect sense for you to realize like this is where all the people are and the market matters. Like I can make the most beautiful icons in the entire world, but if I make them about like some random topic nobody cares about, like no one's going to share the icons. But if I make it about this guy or this topic, people are going to care. Right? You could have made Android icons and like gotten like five retweets and no one would have cared. <laughs> yeah. And then with Super, it's like you're writing like a few waves. You're writing indie hackers in a way. Like you're here, you're talking about like your revenue, you're being transparent. Like this is a thing that people care about. You are uh, on the back of Notion, obviously, which is huge. Like I'm obsessed with Notion. I don't think I've made a single Google Doc in the last like two years since I started <laughs> using Notion. It's just completely replaced it. And there's a million people like me and like Notion, you can rest assured, it has a bunch of people making sure that there's going to be even more people like us in the future. And so like that's a cool trend and community to build off of. And then also like no code, as you said, also blowing up. And so you're always kind of in the limelight, always connecting what you're working on to things that other people care about and really being conscious of the market rather than just doing whatever you want to do and thinking that it's all about your product and not the market that your product is in. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. It's good to sort of talk about this because it helps me sort of like internalize what's going on and it's helped me probably better capitalize on things like this in the future. Because these are things that may yeah. not be obvious to me while I'm doing it, but in retrospect, you're absolutely right. To add to that, I think there's this concept, I think it was Jack Butcher from Visualize Value who formalized this first, but the idea of this permissionless apprenticeship and the idea that you, you don't really need permission from Notion to build a super app. You don't need permission from Apple to build iOS icons. You know, In a sense, you need the opportunity there from them, but you don't need permission from anyone or any company right. to actually build something to make something easier. And so I think there's yeah. opportunities there. If you think about like growing markets, there are opportunities everywhere. Like in case anyone here would benefit from it, let this be it. You know, This is permission <laughs> for everyone listening to this that Everyone here has something that they do that they enjoy doing, whether it be you know, cooking or video games or playing chess. And there's a market for almost everything, which means that there's almost always a way to make money doing what you enjoy. And so if you love cooking, for example, you probably don't even realize that you create your own versions of recipes 
And so it's really simple nowadays just to be able to document them, create some sort of visual recipe book, you know, upload it to Gumroad, publish it with tools like Notion and Super. And so putting mm. things you enjoy out there to the web has never been easier. And no, you don't need permission in order to do it. I think it's so hard for people to understand like what it is that they're uniquely good at and to see any value in it. This happens to developers all the time. They're like, oh, I made this thing, but I can't charge any money because someone else could just code it. And it's like, nobody wants to code an app. <laughs> they would much rather pay money for your app. Like you, that's your talent. You should use it. And for you to, to list all these different things, like if you're good at cooking, like guess what? Most people aren't good at cooking and would love to benefit from your knowledge if you could find a way to get it out there. Even if that means doing this permissionless marketing thing you're talking about. Like it reminds me of like one of the better strategies for going, growing your Twitter account. It's like you want to put your tweets where people are going to see them. And so instead of just tweeting into the ether, you could find really popular accounts and just be like one of the first people to reply to their tweets. And you're going to get a ton of people who see your tweets. And assuming they're any good, like you're going to get some followers or some responses. And so it's this constant sort of theme of like, you don't need somebody's permission to reply to their tweet. You can do that whenever you want to and sort of ride their coattails until you've sort of made it on your own. And the same is true of all, all these other apps and markets and things that are growing. So hopefully this gives people some good ideas of how they can actually get the word out about what they're doing and what kind of ideas are even worth working on. Yeah, exactly. And and there are a lot of things now that are that you can act as, you know, a competitive advantage. Like for me, it's like simplicity, ease of use and things that just look nice. Regardless of what exists in what market, I think there's always an opportunity to make something, you know, simpler, nicer, easier to use, more rewarding, more fulfilling, more yep. inclusive, you know, whatever it may be. And, then, and people will always be willing to pay for things that make their lives even 0.001% better. And looking at your story, it also it's a little soapbox I want to get on where uh, you know, when people talk about content and sharing, there's kind of an obsession with evergreen. Like you need to do something that's going to last forever, that's always relevant. And I look at what you're doing and it's like, no, you're writing like the trends that are the most recent. You know, like you're seeing like, hey, this is like this iOS 14 news is only going to be news for a very small window of time. Like that's not evergreen, an evergreen trend to ride. But like that makes it almost better if you think about it from like a business perspective, because it means that there's a lot of demand. Everybody's suddenly interested in this thing, but there's not a lot of competition because no one has had time to like prepare for the <laughs> release of iOS 14, really. And so if you're like always at the margins doing things that are sort of new, like that's how you kind of stay top of mind. That's how you spread through word of mouth because you're kind of in the places that people are talking about. And I think almost evergreen content, evergreen approaches are almost the opposite where like people aren't ever really excited about it because it's always true. Like if you're writing about like, here's how to rank on Google, well, it's like, basically the same strategies that there were like 10 years ago and you have infinite competitors because every year more people are going to more, write more guides about that kind of thing. Right. And so you know, this is a sort of a tangent, but like I just love the approach that you have of always kind of keeping your ear to the ground and figuring out like what's new, what do people care about and explicitly not caring so much about like I need to do the evergreen thing that's always important. Yeah. And, and the good news is with, with things that are fleeting in a sense is that if you properly integrate some of the other things that you're working on into your digital profiles or your website, short-term hype, no matter where it's coming from, will feed into long-term revenue if the opportunity is there and if your products are, are properly linked within your digital profiles. And so one thing that I noticed that I learned from these, this whole icon craze is that it doesn't matter what you're marketing if you need to market it. And so what I mean by that is short-term hype is bleeding into long-term revenue from these icons to creating super uh, notion pages and them converting to customers on super. And so in a way that inspires me to keep putting things out there that I just enjoy. And even if they're completely irrelevant to the products that I'm, that I'm building, because no one in a way would think, you know, okay, what's the correlation between icons and a publishing layer for notion? The separation right. there is there might not be very much overlap. 
But now I went through them and there, there are 30 or 40 sites being created on Super using Notion that are all basically replicas of my icon page. And so, and that'll Super give smart. more and more people opportunities to create different websites and different content using Notion and Super as well outside of just the icon ecosystem. So what are your thoughts on Notion in general? We're both big Notion fans, but like you're working on a product that's built on top of Notion. So I seem a little more plugged in than I am. It feels like there's this trend now where a lot of the old guard products like the Google Docs of the world, the Microsoft Words are just getting replaced by people who are building products from the ground up that are made for the web, that are made for mobile, that aren't based on these super old like desktop paradigms. And I'm just curious to see where it's going to go. What are your predictions? What are your thoughts? Obviously, you know, you've, you've placed your money where your mouth is. Or you're actually building on top of Notion. But like, what do you think is actually going to happen in the future? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely all in on Notion. I'm all in on tools generally that replace more than one tool. So if you have a tool available to you that replaces two, three, or four, five previous tools that you were using, that's just going to make the process simpler. It's going to make it easier to get your ideas out on the web. It's going to make it easier to document. And so in regards to actually publishing, I feel like Notion is just a dream CMS. It's just like when you think about you know creating content on the web, even products you know as simple as Webflow, the process of adding new content to your site, it's still a little bit, it takes some time, you know, but when you think about adding a thought to Notion and having that automatically published to the web, it feels like magic. So we're really doubling down on that whole idea. Outside of Notion itself, really just making the simplest website publishing experience to date right. that I've ever experienced, you know, and so I'm trying to think a little bit beyond Notion to that extent, because at first we were like plastering Notion everywhere on our website and our Twitter profiles, because obviously it's a product right now that's dependent on Notion, but I want to make the idea for Super a little bit bigger than that. Mm. So that's what inspires me in a sense. Reminds me a bit of um, AJ from Card, who's got like a website builder, and he's like, one person make it a website builder. And it's like, can one person really make a website building company? And he's like, I'm just focused on simplicity. And it's just like one page websites, super easy. And we're entering this world where there are just so many creators and just billions of people literally who want to make websites. And like that number is only going to go up. Like there's still billions of people who aren't even on the web. So the number of people who want to publish things quickly, who don't need to like code something from scratch or make the most fancy thing ever, it's just going to rapidly increase. The market's going to get bigger. And I think there's always going to be room for tools like yours that help people do that in a really simple way. So I'm pretty bullish on it. Yeah. And I was going to add that if I would have asked anybody what they thought about this or, or asked permission to sort of build super, anyone logical would have just told me, you know, there's card. There's Webflow. <laughs> there's even Squarespace and Wix and WordPress and all of these tools, you know. But like I mentioned previously, there's always going to be an opportunity to make something simpler, to make it easier to use, to make it more beautiful and more pleasant. And so yep. if I have any advice, it's it's that. Just build your vision, bring it to life. Even if it's just like your own unique vision, even if it's yeah, like exactly. slower and weirder and harder to use. But it's like, you know what? I really like orange and I think like everyone should like orange. Like there's some subset of people, if the market's big enough, they're like, you know what? I like this, like this guy's style. I'm going to make my thing orange. That's a huge part of it as well. Though. People are not only buying your product, but they're also buying into your vision of the product. If you're the one selling, that's a huge part of it. I think you could have a lot of fun with that too. Going back to 2017, I had built like my own cryptocurrency token called the Boring Token. I based it off of, you know, Elon Musk's Boring Company. It was a very simple page. I wish I still had it up, but I'll probably bring it back up. But it was it was actually fully functional, you could actually send Ethereum and you would get boring tokens in exchange for that. And it was completely honest website. It was saying, you know, are you going to make any money off this? And it was probably just I kept listing out like, no, I'm probably going to be stealing all of your money. But who knows, maybe one day you'll be rich. 
And I had a few people that bought into that just because I was the one selling it and because of how honest it was in a sense. Yeah, people like authenticity. People have like personalities. They're not robots. I think this is a tragedy with with people who are trying to figure out how to make their their apps and their websites a success. And their approach is just to copy everything they see everyone else doing. It's like, well, you want to do the exact opposite. Like you want to not look like everybody else's product, not have the exact same features they have. Because if you do that, then like, how are you ever going to like, why would anyone ever use you? Like when I was a kid, my brother and I used to sing a lot of Michael Jackson as kids. We just like loved Michael Jackson. My brother was a much better singer than I was. And he would always try to impersonate Michael Jackson. And my dad would say like, look, if you try to sing like Michael Jackson, you'll just always be a worse Michael Jackson. You're never going to be that good. You got to find your own voice. And it's the same if you've got an app, a website, or any sort of passion project. You got to figure out like what your vision is for that and put that into that and not worry so much about what's working for other people. Couldn't have said it better. Well, listen, James, I've taken up well over an hour of your time. I think you got a cool story and hopefully I can have you back on the podcast and your icons have hit a million dollars, which it seems like they're going to at this rate. <laughs> I'll write a next blog post titled Seven Figures in Seven Months and see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that'll, that'll blow up. What do you think people who are listening to this who haven't gotten started yet can take away from your story? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing is that you need less than you think to get started. You, know, you, don't, you don't need a business plan. You don't need a degree in software engineering. You don't need to quit your job. You need two things, I would say. One, a computer with internet connection and some initiative. And with those, I think the sky is the limit. I think what each of us have stored in our brains is probably under leveraged to some extent. And so you don't need anyone's permission to capitalize on it, but your own. You need less than you think. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out what you're up to at Super, where they can download your icons, or where they can find this uh, crypto, <laughs> boring crypto token and other things you're working on in the future? Yeah, I'll, I'll actually republish the Boring Token website. It's boringtoken.com when it's back up. Super's URL, super.so. Icon website is icons.tr.af. My personal website is tr.af. Pretty easy to remember. And if you want to just learn more about what else I'm publishing, I got a new few projects in the works. The best place is uh, on Twitter, at Traff. James Traff, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, man. It's been great. Thanks, Cortland. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>